Hi, how are you today? I hope you're doing well. My name's Ethan, and I'd like to discuss the question of the greatest importance for ourselves, our lives, our society, the world, and in fact the universe. Who is God? It's quite the weighty question, isn't it? What can we know about God? How can we know it? Should we believe in God, and if so, why? And how would my belief in God influence my life? This question is all the more important today because a lot of people think that the idea of God is primitive, outmoded, or a relic of an earlier age. And yet, what's interesting is that around the world, belief in God remains pervasive. And even if a person does not believe in God, that person generally still has some kind of idea in their head about what kind of God it would be that people talk about, or the kind of God that might exist. When we talk about trying to figure out who God is, we're talking about theology. A lot of people don't like the word theology, think it's kind of weird or some strange thing that some people do in ivory towers or something of that sort. But everybody really has a theology, if we want to admit it or not. We all have some idea or another about who God is and what he's about. Now, that theology is often shaped and influenced by many factors. There's our heritage. We often believe the type of things our parents believed, or not our parents or other family members, our friends, or some of our other associates. <clears throat> they all, and many others, are influenced by society, and the various views filtered through politicians, media, celebrities, and others. There's what religion has to say, and the views promoted by people who teach these various religions. Underneath all of it is kind of a philosophy, the idea of how things are, and the assumptions we have about how things work. And we also have our experiences, all the things that we've uh, thought about, all the different influences that have shaped us, and then we kind of take our own mark on it by the things we've gone through in life, and how we've come to understand things. And that kind of helps us understand uh, in our head, what we think about God. So we have some idea about God. So wh what would you think about God? When you hear the word God, what comes to mind? What are some of those ideas? Now, how accurate are those ideas? And how could we know any better or different? So how could we know about God? Now, one thing we can't do is we can't imagine we can know about God the way we know about mathematics or physics. Everybody, it seems, is willing to agree, and hopefully you agree too, that we can't perceive God with our five senses, that we cannot see, smell, taste, hear, or touch God. And since we can't perceive him with our five senses, we can't subject him to some kind of scientific experiment or a test. We can't take God, put him in a laboratory, and run tests to see uh, what he's all about. And so if God can't be subjected to our scientific process or some kind of empirical process by which we uh, develop proof for an argument, then the way we understand anything about God is not going to be like other fields of study. Well, think about it for a second. How does somebody learn about math or physics or technology or history or something like that? We expect people to gain all the possible information about that field of study. We expect they spend a lot of time in school, they get advanced degrees, they 
converse with other people who are knowledgeable in the field. They do their own research in the field. We call these people experts. A lot of them are scholars. And we have confidence in what the experts know, not because we are thoroughly immersed in the literature that they're reading. No, it's we believe that, okay, we trust that those guys have done the study, and based on their study, they've come to these conclusions, and that these conclusions that they're reaching is consistent with how they've studied. Really, we all agree to some point about how we come to know things through the scientific method, through the deductive method, other sorts of method. We all agree on those things, and so that's how they applied it, and that's how they've learned it, and that's why I can accept it as true. How many times will we accept something as true because we hear that in a, a survey we had a certain number percentage of people who agreed with it? How many things will we believe because in a controlled blind study uh, there was um, a result that came out that was more than just statistical noise? That's how we humans tend to understand things, based on what we can understand as experts. or trusting in experts. But if God doesn't fit any of these uh, methods, if we can't subject him to the scientific method, if we can't do a focus test uh, or anything of that nature uh, regarding God, then we're not going to be able to learn about God the way we learn other things. So let's just stop and think for a few minutes about some things we would imagine would be true about God. Just as a thought exercise, wouldn't we expect God to be greater than mankind? And that's what most people think, that God is, if he's out there, something greater than mankind. He's not a force we can control, so to speak. And if God is greater than mankind, then aren't we at a bit of a disadvantage? Because it's a lot easier for God to understand us than it would be for us to understand God. And we'd have to admit that our ability to understand God is going to be limited and finite. You know, we humans like to think that we're really good at, at learning things, and there's n no limit to what we can learn. And while we probably have not yet even begun to scratch the surface of all the brain is capable of, it's still going to have a limit. There's only so much we can do with our uh, particular brains. And there's certain things that are hard for us to understand because we live in this universe and we experience boundaries. And so there might be some things that are actually true about God that are really hard for us to make sense of because it doesn't fit how things look in our reality. But that doesn't mean they're any less true. It also means that if God is greater than mankind, it would mean that humans aren't the greatest force in the universe. And we need to think about ourselves appropriately. And so if God is greater than we are and cannot per be perceived with the five senses we've already agreed on, then there's nothing that we can perceive or make or shape that is God. That if we can create it, if we can perceive it, it isn't God. That's another important thing to consider in that line of thinking. We'd also probably expect God to, we'll say, transcend the space-time continuum and exist in some kind of realm greater than our own. We talk about the space-time continuum. We talk about uh, how we are bound by time and space. We are in one place at one time, and our time goes from beginning to end, and it has a fixed beginning point, has a fixed end point. But God would probably be above that whole system and go beyond it. 
And that's how a person might believe that God is all-present or omnipresent, because he's not limited to one time and one space. And if that's the case, he has to exist on some kind of plane, if we can call it that, that's beyond our universe, since our universe is confined in the space-time continuum as well. Generally, we also think that God would have something to do with the way everything works. When this idea is of God as a creator. We can see one thing about the universe, that it's composed to allow for life, and that it's directed by all kinds of forces that are well beyond our power. It's thus easy for us to imagine that there's an organizing force or power, and that might be God. And we would expect God to have at least set up, if not continuing to make work, all the forces that make this universe what it is, and to allow us to exist. And because of that, we would ascribe to God intelligence and strength. Because the organizer of forces is not a force himself. There must be intelligence to organize the forces. Such a God is often ascribed all knowledge, which would be omniscience, and all power, which would be omnipotence. So these are just a few of the many things that we might think are true about God, based on just what we might imagine. And that might be great. But how can we know if any of that is actually true? So again, we've agreed that God would be greater than mankind, he would be intelligent, and that we could not learn of him the way that we'd learn about other matters on earth. Now we might have to be open to the idea that God would want to communicate with us. That would require him to come down to our level to some degree, so that he could convey information about himself that we could understand him. Now if God communicates information about himself, we can have a lot of confidence about it, and thus we can believe that we can understand about God based on what he has made known about himself. That it might be in some figures and some images, but it still is true. And this is the premise of what can be found in the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. The belief that the one true God, the Creator, has spoken to mankind, who is his creation, through certain men, and fully by becoming human as Jesus of Nazareth, as testified by the Hebrew author in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. And so it's in this way that we can know what God has made known about himself. As it, Moses said, that the secret things belong to God, but the things he has revealed uh, belong to us and to our children forever. In Deuteronomy 29 and 29. So what? has God made known about himself that we can actually understand? In John 4 and verse 24, Jesus declares that God is spirit. So God dwells in the spiritual realm and is not a physical being in the way that we understand physicality. And yet, in Acts 17 and verse 28, Paul says that in God we live and move and have our being. And so that means that the spiritual realm is not just somewhere out there, somewhere well away from everything but actually kind of saturates and suffuses the physical realm as well. An example of this would be found in 2 Kings chapter 6, 15-18, when Elisha prays for his servant to see, and the servant opens his eyes, and he sees chariots of fire all around him. Those chariots had always been there. He just could not see it in that spiritual realm. In that sense, it may be that the spiritual is just a different dimension, uh, more real than our own. God has made known that he is the creator of heaven and earth, and that all things exist because of him, in Genesis 1 and John 1. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it's not just that 
God has spoken to us, but that in fact he is the sustainer of all things, and that all things exist because he continues to sustain them and allow them to exist. If God stopped willing that at any moment, everything would collapse and nothing would exist. We're also told in this book that God has a name in Hebrew, Yahweh, the existent one in Exodus 3, 14 through 17. In Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, Moses declares, Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. There are not multiple gods in charge of different forces. Yet even then, God, in John 1, 1 through 3, in 2 Peter 1, 21, is revealed as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We humans have a hard time with that idea. How can he be one but three? Well, it's the unity in John 17, 23-23 is in relationship, not personhood. That the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father. And they're so unified that we speak of God in the singular. They remain distinct persons even though they penetrate each other in some spiritual way beyond our understanding. In Isaiah 55, 8-9, God says that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways than our ways. In 1 John 4, in verse 8, we are told that God is love, that he has made his love known in the creation and in ourselves, that his power and divinity are made known in the things that he has made, in Romans 1, 18-20. There's a lot of characteristics that he's communicated. We know that he is righteous and just in Psalm 89, 14, that he knows all things in Psalm 139, and that when we want to understand the character of God, we look no further than Jesus of Nazareth, that if we have seen Jesus, we have seen the Father in John 14, 6 through 9, and that he is the express character, imprint of the divine image in Hebrews 1 and verse 3. So that's a lot of stuff that the scriptures tell us about God. And so we can kind of grasp maybe some of these in some way, but how do they really help us relate to him? We can make this really stuffy and just have a bunch of facts that we're supposed to accept about God, but it doesn't necessarily draw us any closer to him. There have been a lot of metaphors used throughout time, some in Scripture and some in people trying to explain Scripture, that may be able to help us a bit in understanding a little bit more about all these different attributes that we've just mentioned. Now, we have to be clear, a metaphor is simply a way of explaining one thing in terms of another. And it's very easy to pick at some of the details of the metaphor. And we, we there's certainly times we can do that, but I hope we can get the greater point involved. And we need to be careful lest we confuse what we're talking about, God, with the metaphor, the target, the source, uh, with what we're trying to ta- explain, God, the target here. So we got to be careful uh, to not get too hung up on the metaphor. But we're humans. We understand by analogy and comparison, so metaphor is better than nothing. We mentioned earlier the idea that God exists in a different dimension, and we can kind of take that back a further step, uh, looking at dimensionality based on the idea of a book called Flatland by Edwin Abbott. Certainly not inspired or anything of the sort, but Edwin Abbott takes this idea of dimensions and kind of creates a, a, a romantic story in a different dimension. Remember, in our dimensions, the first dimension features points on a line. The second dimension feature is connected lines on a plane, so like a circle or a square. And the third dimension features shape, like a sphere. And so Flatland attempts to envision a world of the second dimension. So just, you know, shapes on a plane. I mean, uh, lines combined on a plane. Uh, in which a th- an object from the third dimension enters. Now to a second dimension world, a third dimensional shape seems completely crazy. It's internally contradictory. 
literally to understand everything because they're in the second dimension. They must flatten everything out. And when you take something that's three-dimensional, you try to flatten it out, it becomes a distorted mess. So if we can understand that in terms of how the second dimension see the third dimension, how much more then would we who live in the three, or if you want time as a fourth dimension, four-dimensional world, try to understand how God can inhabit a higher level of dimensionality? That a lot of times we're trying to understand things about how God is or how God works with us, we end up flattening it out in certain ways. And while we're on the earthly plane and flatten it out, it seems a little bit internally contradictory, maybe. It may seem distorted and a mess, but the reason for that is not because it isn't true and they're not reflecting reality. It's because we're just not understanding because we don't get the full picture. Because the understanding the full picture is be as beyond us as it would be for a circle to understand a sphere. So that's one way of maybe helping us understand some things about God. The other one comes from C.S. Lewis, the idea of sun and light. That to believe in God is like believing the sun has risen because it illuminates all other things. Uh, if we try to stare at the sun, we get blinded. We can't see anything. Uh, it's too dazzling. But when we wake up in the morning and look around, all things can be seen because the sun's light illuminates it. And this is a helpful metaphor in light of the idea of Romans 1, 18-20. We may not be able to perceive God through our five senses. But God's hand is evident in all things. So everything else is visible and incomprehensible. We can understand all things as having reason to exist because of God. And that's what Lewis was all about, trying to show all things make sense because God is. And it's not just any God, but the God who made himself known to Israel in Jesus. And that when we recognize that that is the God who has made us, and that is the God who has communicated to us, then why everything is the way it is makes sense. And until we come to that realization, we can't make sense of the universe in which we live. Now, when we're willing to adjust our view to look at everything in that prism and understand, we will come to the same conclusion. Another metaphor, another one we don't want to press the comparison too far, but the relational unity in marriage reflects God's internal unity. In marriage, a man and his wife remain two distinct persons, but, as in Genesis 2 and Matthew 19, they become one flesh. They become one in relational unity, will, purpose, intention. Their marriage makes them one, but they are still two. They don't lose their distinctive personalities in that union. They interpenetrate as one, yet remain two. A related metaphor would be music. You have uh, any different kind of musical performance, different instruments, or different people singing, and they're all using their instrument or their vocal cords to make vibrations in the air. Those vibrations all come and, and interpenetrate each other. They hit each other. They bounce off each other. Uh, we can hear distinct instruments. We hear distinct voices. And yet they will all blend together to create a harmonious whole. It is one piece of music coming out of all these different things all together. And so in that sense, we can kind of understand how God can be one and yet three persons. They're relationally one. They're one in will and purpose and things like that, but three distinct personalities. And in fact, it helps understand how God can be love and yet not a narcissist or needing people. Needing something to love because God loves within himself. Yet the most predominant metaphor is the one that Jesus uses all the time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that is God as Father. The idea that we are his offspring in Acts 7.28. If we are his offspring, that means he is our Father. 
the father image really does a great job explaining how God loves and cares for us. It also explains why he might discipline us and why he would do that. Why he would allow transgression but have to punish it. And this is seen very vividly in a parable given by Jesus in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he would spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began... To celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and he, as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things mean. And he said to him, Your fa- brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many days I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, he who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so in this story, we see the great love that the father has for his children, even the children who have gone astray. And yet he always maintains standards. He always wants that child to come back to him. The child has to come back to realize uh, that he needed to come back to the father and that the things that he was doing was not good and not right and not healthy. In fact, the father desires our repentance greatly so that he can bless us. A lot of people have an idea that God is just some uh, unhappy old man up there waiting to find a way to condemn. But we need to keep in mind that if he just wanted to condemn us, God wouldn't have had to do anything. We've already done that work. We've sinned. We've fallen short of his glory in Romans chapter 3. And the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, 22 and 23. That in fact in scripture, God wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4. That's in fact why he sent his son to the point where Paul will ask, if God has given us of his Son, how will he not also with him give us all things? Now in all these things, God has done everything he can do for us in love that we may share in his inheritance as any good father would. But he loves us. And love does not coerce or compel. It does not seek his own in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-8. He loves us and is willing to let us go in our own way, even to our own hurt, if we will remain hardened against him. But as the father in the story, almost embarrassingly so, wants to welcome back that son in joy.
So, these are some of the things we can know about God, but what end does that matter? Now, we need to know the truth in John 8 and 32, because it's going to set us free. We need to know of God in 1 John 2 and verse 3, do his commandments. But in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, Paul warns us that knowledge puffs up. Knowing God is not enough. Our knowledge of God is designed to lead us to trust in him. To put our faith in him. That assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. That without it, it is impossible to please God in verse 6. Because if knowledge doesn't lead us to trust God, what value does our knowledge have? Because that's the thing God is trying to show us through what he has revealed in scripture. That God is trustworthy. That he has created us and given us all good things. In Acts 17 and James 1.17. That he has sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. And that with him will give us all things. That he wants us to be one with him as he is one in himself. In John 17.20-23. And we look at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21. What does eternity look like? It's being in God's presence forever. And so when we ask the question, who is God? We can't separate that question from, will you trust God? Because we can't know everything. We're not the measure of reality. If I think something's real, doesn't make it real. Now, we have reason to believe that the creator of the universe has communicated to mankind, has provided the means by which we can spend eternity with him. So will we trust him? Will we trust in his love and care and faithfulness? Would we prove willing to see his hand in the creation and in our lives, directing us for our good to be saved? Would we be willing to set aside whatever we've been taught from all these other sources that's not consistent with what he has made known about himself? Can we prove willing to cast our anxieties and our fears and our doubts on him? To be willing to live with some unanswered questions and some difficult tensions so that we can live and trust in him? Because in the end, all the intellectualized facts about God that we can come up with will mean little in light of the ultimate question, which is, are we willing to trust in him or not? Will you trust in God? We're so glad that you've joined us, and we hope that you've been encouraged to consider trusting God. If you have not yet trusted in God and would like to learn more about who he is so you can be restored and reconciled to your God, we'd love to talk with you more. If you do believe in God and you'd like some further encouragement about other subjects, I'd like to encourage you some more. If you'd like to have a Bible study, if you'd like to come and meet with us, you can learn more about us. We're the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles, and we're online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org and related social media. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ, and you can learn more about me and contact me directly on my website, DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.